Peshtigo, October 1871. The pioneer lumber towns of northern Wisconsin often utilized fire as a necessary tool. Controlled burns were often utilized for clearing land for farming, building, and laying railroad tracks. But on this particular day, the fires began to burn completely out of control. A sudden change in wind direction from the southwest whipped up many smaller fires into the deadliest fire our nation has ever seen, burning over a million acres and killing thousands of people. But because of a cruel twist of fate, the nation's attention at the time was turned elsewhere. And as Peshtigo lay dying, nobody was coming to save them. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode seven of Badger Bazaar. Alongside my co-host, Mickey Sanders, I am your co-host, Scott Whitman. <laughs> you better say it like that. We are uh, we're running a little late this time. We had uh, This was actually supposed to be recorded last week. But um, I think a lot of you in the state know that we've been dealing with a little bit of weather Issues. We didn't have any power for several they days. They couldn't go to the bathroom or shower or power, so Scott couldn't come over. I had all that. You should have come over and taken advantage. Mickey's a big-time city dweller, so yeah. uh, he didn't, wasn't oh, yeah. affected by any of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I'm not one of your but, rural people. Yeah. Can't we even live, say that word. We live in the sticks. So a lot of where I live, the people were out of power for, we were out of power almost three days. No power, no water. Um, a lot more people were out of power for about five days, and right. there, but there were barns blown down, and there were siding ripped off of uh, houses and stuff. So there were there were some power lines down. I mean, right. preventing roads from having passage. Even it was pretty bad. So it, it got yeah. Some people suffered a lot more than we did, but Mother Nature can be a pissed off bitch at times. Absolutely. But here we are recording another one of your uh, favorite podcast episodes from America's Scary Land. Uh, a couple of notes I'd like to make quick. A very heartfelt thank you to everybody that came out this past weekend, this past Saturday, uh, June 25th, to the Jump River Valley Historical Society in the beautiful North Woods, up in Price County, to my signing event for my book, Finding Dairyland. It was wonderful out there this weekend, getting to meet so many of you that came out, even again on a day where the weather wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. We had some rain. Uh, that we thought might affect attendance, but uh, it doesn't appear that it did. So thank you so much for coming out. It was wonderful to meet you, wonderful to talk to you. Uh, I got to hang out again with uh, a lot of the wonderful people that helped me uh, with the research of this book while I was writing it about just how the hell we've lost so many dairy farms in this state in the last 50 years or so. So thank you for taking the time to come out and see me. It was great. It was a good day. Um, again, my next event scheduled is Saturday, July 16th in Vernon County, and that'll be at the Cheyenne Settlers Heritage Society fundraiser. If you've read the book Finding Dairyland, you know, uh, or if you haven't and you just know about Cheyenne Valley, you know the importance of that area to our heritage as a state 
and there's going to be a massive fundraiser in a couple of weeks, a big uh, reunion of all the descendants um, happening on July 16th, which is a Saturday from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m., again, an all-day affair at Fireman's Park in Hillsboro. So again, come out and see me. We'll have a bunch of food, bunch of raffles, uh, bounce houses, you name it, and uh, and say hi. Come out and see me. Let's talk finding Dairyland. Let's talk some Badger Bazaar, and you, or maybe even your other book. I mean, you probably know. Or my yeah, about. or any any. I'll talk about anything. True crime, Lost Fox Cities, baseball, baseball, porn. Oh, I always go too far. But uh, sp- speaking of seeing people, we uh, a couple things since we uh, last recorded. We did meet up with Craig Naring from the Fox Valley Ghost Hunters a couple of weeks ago. Um, we had a wonderful conversation with him about Summerwind. Uh, if you haven't listened to episode number two about Summerwind Mansion in Land Lakes, probably the, the foremost expert on Summerwind, at least. Yeah, Craig Naring is the, the foremost expert on Summerwind. Summerwind is probably the most well-known, most famous haunted house in Wisconsin. And this uh, guy is just knowledgeable in general. He actually part owner of a nearby school that has had a lot of hauntings in Fond du Lac. Fox Valley Ghost Hunters purchased a, a school in Glen Beulah that they do uh, haunted tours with. They do haunted tours at the Sheboygan County Asylum. They have an event coming up with Adam Barry from Kindred Spirits, the TV show. Coming up in early July here, so they if, have. If you know anything about the paranormal, you've heard of that guy. No, no doubt about it. They have a ton of stuff coming up, and uh, we will have that uh, interview with with Craig posted in uh, on the next couple episodes. We also have Jim Cooper coming in, talking about the paranormal angle of what we're talking about today, because if there is any place, if 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 the stories are true and ghosts are, you know. The remnants from tragic happenings, from kind of trapped souls. If there's any haunted town in America, it's going to be Peshtigo, Wisconsin, right. uh, from what we talk about today. So Jim Cooper, very good friend of mine, somebody I've known for quite a while, investigated a lot of times with, um, he's going to come on, we're going to hit the paranormal angle of Peshtigo, Wisconsin, and talk about an investigation that we did there a couple of years ago. So a whole bunch of things in the hopper. Mickey and I have some road trips coming up later this summer. And uh, we some got, that we've mentioned, some that we're yet to mention in upcoming podcasts. We got uh, all kinds of things happening this summer, so be sure to keep checking back and and tune in to Badger Bazaar. So switching gears here a little bit, um, if you remember the last time we recorded, we got a question about podcasts and authors that we that are inspired by From Carrie that Kate. we that we uh, um, consume. And we hit podcasts uh, in the last episode about Haunchyville. A lot of feedback about Haunchyville, too. A lot of people did not know about that, including well, we had never ourselves. Heard of it, right? Yeah, and, and quite, a, quite a story that turned into. Um, so go ahead and, and listen to episode six if you haven't already. But um, we talked about our, our podcast, kind of our favorite podcast in this genre. In that episode, and I think this episode, we're going to talk about our books and authors that Mickey and I drain some influence from. And uh, and get inspired by who you got, Mick. I mean, as it's maybe been obvious throughout our seven episodes, I have always been interested in abnormal psychology, which goes into like the serial killer phenomenon. So I have a lot of encyclopedias and individual books about you know guys like Ed Gein and Jeffrey Dahmer and Arthur Shawcross, just some of these well-known guys. And one of the authors who's written. I don't want to interrupt. I just saw a Netflix documentary on Arthur Shawcross. I think last week or a couple of weeks ago. You saw the, and you you watched the one about uh, messed up dude. Yeah, to say the least. And you read the or you watched the one about uh, John Gacy, Wayne Gacy. Gacy. I still haven't yeah. seen that one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Doctor Joel Norris is a PhD in psychology from University of Georgia, and is a founding member member of International Committee of Neuroscientists to study episodic aggression. He's written quite a few of these books, and he actually wrote one of my favorite books. It's just simply called Serial Killers. Just to take a quote from the cover, LA Times Book Review calls it, an absorbing readable text that combines intimate profiles of serial killers with a serious discussion of psychobiology. So it, it gives a few profiles of like four or five guys. Then it actually, you know, it even talks about different characteristics, like even attached earlobes and some of these underformed physical attributes that a lot of them seem to have in common so it's a very interesting book a book that goes into a lot of that kind of stuff uh one of the other books is called the encyclopedia of serial killers by brian lane and wilford Gregg. and then there's one it's it's a fictional book about a boy named john wayne cleaver who was 15 grew up in his helping his mom at the local mortuary he's a sociopath but he's not a serial killer 
And the book is all about his struggles to become a normal or to be a normal human being and to fit in without giving to his urges. It's called I Am Not a Serial Killer by Dan Wells. It's a very interesting book. Like you said, it's kind of, it's fictional, but it seems to be based on the lives of a lot of these guys who struggle to just fit in and, and not give in to those you know, sociopathic ur- urges, you know. Um, another author who's a world-famous psychic medium and best-selling author with a master's in English literature, Sylvia Brown. She's really well-known. I've got a book or two of hers that it, it delves into the paranormal, essentially, but, you know, it's more about... Um, psychic readings and and she she's a medium so she has made contact with other entities she, she's an english lit, lit major so she's very well written and she writes really decent interesting books and then finally michael newton is a author who's published over 357 books 258 novels and 99 non-fiction books including one that i like it's called the serial killer encyclopedia calling hunting humans volumes one and two this guy is just a lot of quantity and they're really good books but again it's more serial killer oriented and it's just these encyclopedias that kind of delve into many different people so very interesting books very well written and uh, these are some of the names in, in that serial killer phenomenon that you might want to check out psychics and serial killers That'd be a good band name does sound like a band name yeah um all right, I'm going to go into into mine here. I have a couple of books, and then I have uh, several authors. I go back to quite a bit. The books I've chosen, uh, one, they're kind of on the opposite ends of the spectrum of true crime. One is the book that literally got me into true crime. It whet my appetite when I first read it. I must have been a teenager or so. And it's also, I mean, it's, which is interesting because it's kind of known as the first really true crime novel, and that's In Cold Blood. In oh, Cold Blood by, by Truman Capote, um, about very well known. Yeah, about the the murder of the Clutter family in Kansas, and it's uh, a brutal book. If you don't know what you're reading, like I did when I picked it up, you're going to be smacked in the face. That was your mom hitting you with the book. Though. It might have been. I'm, I, probably, I was probably doing something that I wasn't supposed to be right. doing or something. But um, she uh, might have been scared of the book, knowing your mom. Maybe. Too. I think if you're into true crime, you got to read that book. You just you that was kind of the start of the true crime phenomena. This was written in in uh, I think it was published in '66. The murders happened in '59. Um, he published it in '66. And there's a movie about it too. It's called Capote. It's not actually about the murders, but it's a kind of a biopic of of Truman Capote. But obviously, his writing of In Cold Blood was a huge part of his career. It's a huge part of how he's remembered today, and it gets into, you know, the goings-on of his researching and writing this book, which, you know, he got a little too close to the people committing the murders, which leads me to the second book I have, which is in kind of the opposite end of the spectrum on that, and it's called The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. So there is, we're starting to see today kind of a, you know, a backlash to true crime because it's, it's so prolific. There's a million podcasts about it there's a million books about it and and obviously what does it do it kind of glorifies the perpetrators and the dark side of life in general yeah, and you know and and a lot of this backlash is coming from victims and the family members of victims and obviously understandably so how can you how can you argue with that you know and jack the ripper i think is is one of the illustrations of that where for 130 years however long it's been We've been debating about who Jack the Ripper was. They still theorize who the they, heck he right. might have been. I mean, whether he was a doctor or just some other social deviant or whatever, there's so many theories still. But the actual five women that he killed, how much do we hear about them? Nothing. I know their names because I did reports on them sure. in high school, and I, I was always fascinated by it, but nobody else. Unless you research this stuff, unless you look into it, and you 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 know you make a point to find who they were, you have no clue. Right. But everybody knows Jack the Ripper. Yep. So well, the, they don't, ironically, actually, but or, right. heard the name, yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, the book, The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhold. It's an excellent book, very recent, came out, I think, in 2020, 2019. That's interesting. Um, I never, we've never talked about Jack the Ripper in all our conversations it, about this stuff. It blows apart the mythical narrative that we've been told for this long about who these women were. We're told that these women were streetwalkers, right? They were prostitutes. Uh, that's not necessarily the case, and we've been—it's—it's it's all a myth, you know. The Jack the Ripper uh, story—we know nothing about. We know it from you know snippets on TV shows for a hundred years. Uh, but Hallie Rubenhold gets into the nuts and bolts about who these women were, 
and it's really a different take on true crime. And I think it's a take on true crime that we're going to see a lot more in, in the coming years about more of an emphasis on the people that it's affecting and how it affects them and how it affects the people, uh, their families. So she researched the victims. Yes. I mean, a, a, a lot. Because and a lot of that whole Jack the Ripper story is, is theories. And I they, they did always assume that the women he went after were streetwalkers because, as a lot of these guys, as we mentioned in another podcast, they thought they were easy targets and that nobody cared that they were gone. And I think, I, I don't know what that book says, but I do believe some of them at least delved into that at times for, you know, money purposes or whatever. But, I mean, that doesn't mean they were necessarily known as... Well, you know, one of the reasons that it was talked about that they were street that they were prostitutes or or streetwalkers is because they were killed in their beds. Right. That doesn't mean they were streetwalkers. No, not necessarily. That means that the killer could have came in there and killed them while they were sleeping. Right. And that's what it looks like. Some of these were. They sure. weren't. The whole sex worker uh, narrative is a myth. And, and well, and, and I mean, possibly. possibly. And that's the whole point of this. It's been going on for, as you said, over a hundred years. Well, over a hundred. And we still don't know squat. So a lot of it is theories, and some of it's more well-researched theories and stuff. But there, it's just the further we get from that, from those incidents, the the less we're going to ever know. So it just comes out to speculation. But that's why it's so fascinating. Check that book out. I think yeah, you'll be, if you, if, you, if you haven't heard of it, uh, read it. And uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Uh, authors that I, Anne Rule, you know, probably the quintessential true crime author. You know, really interesting story herself. Her, probably her best-known book, I think, is also her first book, The Stranger Beside Me. I've got a few of her books, too. Was about Ted Bundy because she worked she worked with Ted Bundy uh, and sat next to him at work, you know, but she had no idea then he was a serial killer. So she wrote probably the best-known full biography of Ted Bundy. Um, and then she went on and wrote a whole bunch of really amazing true crime uh, books. A lot of it, I think most of it taking part in the Upper Northwest, which is obviously where she was from. That's where Bundy did a lot of his work, if you want to say. But she you know, she wrote books on the I-5 killer. Right, the, a lot of them serial killers. The Green River Killer, right, right. Yeah, Gary Ridgway. Um, so Anne Rule, um, probably the most prolific true crime writer. Another author I'm going to bring up, and I brought this up in a uh, one preceding podcast. I think, it, I don't know if it was the last one or the one before that, because I talked about Devil in the White City. Uh, by Eric Larson and the devil in the white city is about H.H. H. Holmes. It, you know, it's, it's about more than H.H. H. Holmes. It's about the, the building of the Chicago world's fair. It's probably about two thirds of the world's fair and one third of H.H. H. Holmes, but it's a, he's an amazing writer. He, I wouldn't call him a true crime writer. He has written books that can be in that genre, but his research, he's my idol in regards to really? a researcher. I mean, he gets he finds information that nobody else is going to find. But his you know he's a book called Isaac's Storm, which is about the Galveston, Texas hurricane. He writes all nonfiction, mostly nonfiction, but they're written in novel style. Devil in the White City is. I mean, Devil I, in the I White haven't City. I haven't written it yet because that's shocking. I know, but I've heard time and time again that's a, an amazing book. He's a phenomenal writer. He. Myself as a writer, I study him, read his prose over and over again. I kind of study his research techniques. Eric Larson, um, in my opinion, not necessarily my favorite writer, but he's he's up there for me. I mean, he's I love the work he does. And H.H. Uh, H. Holmes is actually another guy that they speculated could be Jack the Ripper, so there's a tie in there. Too. He doesn't, but no, but, but other have people, people have, have. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, own, it's a narrative that people have talked about. His sure. own descendant has mm -hmm. subjected on that. A couple of more uh, local uh, authors. T. Krulos. T. Krulos writes some really interesting books. He lives in Milwaukee. The first book I read from T. is called Monster Hunters. On the trail with ghost hunters, bigfooters, ufologists, and other paranormal investigators, and what he does, he embeds himself with these people. So he go. He's he's not a, a he's not a researcher himself, um, but he he embeds himself with ghost hunters and bigfooters and ufologists, and he goes out there and he writes about them and he writes about these people and the kind of the things that drive him. Uh, another book he wrote is called Apocalypse Any Day Now: Deep Underground with America's Doomsday Preppers. So he embeds himself with survivalists, and he writes about their lifestyle. And it's just, he's a super entertaining writer. He's funny. Uh, he lives in Milwaukee, as I said. He's actually 
the organizer of the Milwaukee Paranormal Conference, which happens, really? I believe, every October. So T. Krulos, check him out. Uh, another book he's called is called American Madness, the story of the Phantom Patriot and how conspiracy theorists hijacked American consciousness. He's just a fascinating writer. When you say in bed, does that mean he actually like? He, well, he goes. He go. Yeah, he spends time with lives them. Lives with them. Almost yeah. He, for a while. Yes. Yeah. He 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 is doing what they're doing with them. That's the ultimate that's research. Good writing. Right there, you right? know, it's yeah. good research. Yeah. Right. He's funny. He's poignant when he needs to be. Good writer. Check him out. T. Krulos. Um, and then the other one, the last one I put on there, just because I think in the kind of the bizarre-ish genre that we talk about, it's got to be Chad Lewis. If you're listening to this, you probably know who Chad Lewis is. He's a lecturer. He lectures all over the state. He's got a gazillion books out there talking about all kinds of paranormal everything. You know, he's got the Wisconsin Road Guide to Mysterious Creatures, Wisconsin Road Guide to Haunted Locations. He also does this in Illinois and Minnesota and Michigan, uh, Lake Monsters of Wisconsin. He's written just a slew of paranormal books. They're all available on his website. And he gives presentations all over the state, not only Wisconsin, but all in this area. I think he lives in Wisconsin, and he does a lot of research into the the unexplained. Well, if you're writing road guides, I mean, you're going all over, too. You're not just focused on one little area. Again, that's that's real research. You know, he's not sitting at a a table Googling everything. Right. So um, good stuff. T. Krulos, Chad Lewis, local guys, check him out. And uh, between me and Mickey, you're going to have uh, oodles of hours of uh, entertaining reading. Right before and you'll you be to just a little night. more twisted at the end of it. That's all we're shooting for. So October 8th, 1871. What does that day mean to you, Mickey? What did it mean to you before we started? Uh, it was starting? a couple years before I was alive, so... I don't really remember that much from it. I knew about this. Everybody's heard about it, and it was a big... I wouldn't say everybody's heard about it. No, I mean, well, people are familiar that it happened, I think. Like, it got definitely blown off because of the Chicago fire that went on earlier that night. But, ah, yeah, I learned a lot about this in my research because, as you said, most people are not all that familiar with it, if they're familiar with it at all. And it's very interesting because a lot of things went down. and It's, it's known... Um, kind of in the annals as the forgotten fire, um, even though it's the it's the most destructive fire in American history. Correct. It's the, it's the most deadly. Deadly. Yeah. Okay. It's it um, first deadliest. Yeah. But but again, when it happens, not only did it happen on the same day as the Chicago fire, it happened in the same hour. Like it, they 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 started like in the, at the same time at night. And there was another fire in the UP that was. Even more disregarded. There was another one in Michigan, in Holland and Manistee, that was a different fire okay. that burned. I mean, it, yeah, it was a day that, you know, when, when people went through this, you know, the fire was so catastrophic that they literally thought it was the biblical end of the world. Yeah. Like they had never seen anything like this before. Historians that I was reading about over and over said that was a quote that people thought this was the end of the world, the end of times. Yeah. So, yeah, again, October 8th, 1871 is the day of the Great Chicago Fire. And everybody knows it's a Great Chicago Fire, right? There's songs written about it. There's folk tales written about it. There's children's school songs written about it. It's it's one of those things that's baked into American folklore. Well, even aspects of architecture were invented after that, right? Yeah. As the city rebuilt itself. So there, I mean, there's a lot of good things that came from that fire, but this fire was totally disregarded right. as a result. Two hundred and fifty miles north, Peshtigo was burning, and the world didn't know about it, and they didn't find out about it until days, sometimes weeks later, because of what happened in Chicago, uh, which is one of the bizarre things about this, right? I mean, you had two fires. More than that, you had about four fires right. up in the upper Midwest in the Great Lakes area here in Chicago. Not even, I mean, two of them, as you said, were linked, but just kind of separate fires. And it, we'll get into this, but it's because of conditions and the way people were handling things at the time, but still. 
That's a one crazy day. And it's because, you know, because of that, that you had a lot of uh, theories and conspiracies about how these happened. How can these fires happen on the same day like that and not be, uh, some people think it was coordinated, you know, this, you know, you have, obviously that's not true, but you have conspiracy theories that result from this kind of thing when you have a coincidence of this magnitude, um, which really wasn't a coincidence because of what what you said. The conditions were ripe for this, and it wasn't that that fire just started burning out of the blue. There were techniques that were being used to destroy woods and all that stuff that we'll get into. That That fire has not been, obviously, remembered in American lore like the Great Chicago Fire has, and it killed eight times more people. Like, it's not even, like, it dwarfs the Great Chicago Fire in terms of lives lost. Yeah, it dwarfs it. It's not even close. And even acreage, right? 1.2 million acres burned up in Peshtigo. It's the deadliest, still today, it's the deadliest wildfire ever in North America and one of the biggest wildfires the world has ever seen. The fascinating thing about it is, you know, when you research it, which sadly not a lot of people have done since 1871, because, again, it gets forgotten by by the Chicago fire. I think one of the one of the good things about new media like podcasts are now is that you can search for the Peshtigo fire in podcasting and you can find it now. Oh yeah. People are learning about it because of new media. They're you know they're just what podcasts have done. Podcasters are like searching for things to talk about. Right. Right. And they find this and they're like what in the hell is this? And so now Peshtigo is becoming a popular kind of podcast topic. They call it Peshtigo. They're not familiar with the area. They haven't heard the name Peshtigo before, again, because it hasn't been talked about. But new media has kind of uh, given new life to what happened in Peshtigo on that day. Well, there's even a, a, a museum dedicated to just that fire. It's called the Peshtigo Fire Museum. And, and this is going to be, I think, more of a longer form podcast for Mickey and I this time, because we're going to, if you listen to podcasts about the Peshtigo Fire, you're going to hear a lot of stats. You're going to hear a lot of numbers. And, and we'll go through some of that. And a lot of the science of, you know, maybe what causes. But you're not going to hear a lot of the personal stories of what people went through. And that's what Mickey and I are going to do today. I've written about this several times. I've been published about it. So we do have personal stories that, that we want to share. And I think it really brings it home of what the hell happened here that hasn't been told enough in, in American history. Especially firsthand accounts. I mean, that. That'll give you a point of view, like you right. said, you don't get otherwise. You're going to hear in this episode, too, I'm going to play some snippets from a, an interview that I did last year with Pauline King, who is one of the um, volunteers at the Peshtigo Fire Museum. And I did this uh, last year without thinking that this was going to be in a podcast. I was actually doing research for an article that I was writing about the fire. So I didn't record it thinking that would it would be in a podcast, so the, the quality is not the best, but you can, I mean, obviously you can definitely make out what she's saying. And I just want to play a couple of snippets so you can hear her also talk about some of the things that happened on that day. And, you know, there's, there's a couple times where when she's, especially when she's talking about the personal stories that she, she kind of starts choking up, you know, because this, this is, it's then when you start, it becomes real, you know, the, the human element really comes in. And like we mentioned before, this is going to be a longer form podcast for us. I think this is probably going to be broken down into two episodes. Obviously, the the, the episode with Jim Cooper is going to be a standalone episode as well. Um, but this core episode, too, I think is probably going to be broken into two episodes. So a little different format that we're working with today. But, you know, Mickey and I want to, want to be sure to tell the story because it's been... Uh, I think, long enough since their story's been told. Right. You know, obviously there were survivors here. There were t- upwards of 2,500 people killed. They'll never know. We'll never know how many people died in that fire for a couple of reasons. One is because all the records were burned up in the fire, right? But there were there were also so many people there at the time who were there working. They were working on the railroads. They were working in the lumber camps, and they weren't documented. No. They came here to find jobs. You know, they, they were here and, you know, upwards of a thousand people probably. And the speculation is that those people, that what the techniques they were using to, you know, acquire wood and all that stuff may have been at least part of the reason why it spread or no, started. No question about it. Yeah, the techniques 
not only what they were doing, but farmers in the area too. You know, a lot of the a lot of the ways you cleared land there was was using fire, but slash and burn. You know, and so the survivors, there are survivors account, and they're harrowing, and they are kind of brutal to listen to. They're brutal to read, and it really kind of brings home, you know, what was going on there. One, you know, one of the things they always talk about, which kind of is eerie to me, is is they always talk about the sound, the sound that it made. They said it wasn't; it sounded like rushing waterfalls. You know, think about this. You're in a rural area in Wisconsin. You're in the woods. You're in the woods. You you hear fire. You see fire, and it sounds what they say like a rushing waterfall. They say it sounded like a freight train bearing down on them. Like a tornado, even. Right? It was a tornado. Right. It actually created its own tornado. Right. You know, this is just six years after the after the end of the Civil War, and a lot of people said it was just this constant. It sounded like this constant barrage of artillery you know, just exploding every few seconds. That's the sound of the fire, and that doesn't include the sound of the horror, right, of the fire itself, of the screams. People being basically tortured by this fire. Yeah. To say it was without warning when the fire spreads, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but the smell of ashes just from the slash and burn techniques that were being used, it was a common thing. So people didn't think twice about it. And then all of a sudden... It's like a tidal wave of fire coming at you. So it was kind of without warning. People were just caught in flames. Just, I mean, things were spontaneously combusting because the ambient air temperature was over 700 degrees and the, the fire temperatures reached up over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Which That's is hot. Which is hotter than a, it's hotter than a crematorium. I thought you were going to say which is tit. That's what my dad always used to say. I don't even know what that is. I don't either, but I heard it a lot. I don't even know if it's hot or cold, to be honest, no. You know, if you think at the sound of the screaming people, the livestock and animals, they're literally being burned alive by... Just torture. This scene that's never been repeated in American life, ever. It is, again, the deadliest fire we've ever had. Nothing comes close to it. So, you know, in, in Peshtigo, that time was quintessential American life. You hear a lot about Peshtigo was a quote-unquote booming lumber town in the area, or at the time. It was. It was a booming lumber town at the time. And you have to go back. So this is the time of of logging, right, where you had these big, majestic timber forests in, you know, post-Civil War North. Cities that were just being built now, Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, they were just being built. Southern cities, Richmond, Atlanta, Nashville, they were obviously being reconstructed from being decimated during the Civil War. You had Manifest Destiny, you had the miners heading out west. Right, so all of this is dependent on a streamlined supply of wood. Right, right. You need buildings, farms, barns, fuel, transportation, tools. And, and that, like you said, this was home to one of the largest wood product factories exactly. in the United States. Right, and a lot of that products, would, which means all sorts of things, as you said. A lot of that wood came from the forests in in northern and and, and central Wisconsin at that time. So you know the forests in Peshtigo at this time, 1870s, 1860s, 1870s, was limitless. Some of these trees were, were six feet wide, 170 feet tall. Like you picture the redwoods out in California. I mean, th- these were, you know, rivaling those. It said, it said that a squirrel, this is amazing, a squirrel could travel from the UP in Michigan to Minnesota. So from the UP through Wisconsin to Minnesota without ever touching the ground. No kidding. Just from tree to tree to tree to tree. That's some... Big trees, you know, and the and the crown jewel of the crown jewel of those forests was the white pine, and this is what was floated down the Peshtigo River, which bisected the the city of Peshtigo from the forest, and it went to the sawmills. So, and because of this, this is where your jobs were. It was a quote unquote booming lumber town. There were sixty or so lumber camps in the Peshtigo area at the time. Much, I should say, of Peshtigo's success was due to the Peshtigo Company, which was a lumber business started by. A guy by the name of William Butler Ogden. He basically owned the town, right? He pretty much owned the town. Now, he came here, he's a native New Yorker, and came here by way of his time spent in Chicago. So he was a real estate developer and a railroad tycoon. He was actually looking to expand the railroads north through the forests and into the iron mines of the UP. So the Peshtigo Company created this massive campus. And so Peshtigo at the time had many sawmills, Boarding houses, dry goods stores, machine shops, grist mills, and the Woodenware Company, which Mickey said by 1871 was the largest woodenware factory in the world, in the world, in Peshtigo. So it produced much of the nation's everyday household wooden items, right? What do you need that's wood? 
pails, tubs, buckets, shingles, clothespins, brooms. I mean, even like a hammer handle, it, tools, right. everything, you know. Everything, all tools of that. that you're using to get the wood. You, you, Axe handles, yeah. Wood, yeah. All that came from from the Peshtigo company, not all of it, but obviously a lot of that came from the woodenware company in, in Peshtigo, Wisconsin. And because of that, that's where the jobs were. So you had immigrants arriving by the thousands in northern Wisconsin at this time, in the 1850s and 1860s. Plus, all like all the buildings and stuff were timber-framed. I mean... Everything was wood. Right, everything yeah. was wood. Because the Homestead Act had just been enacted after the Civil War, and people could clear land, and if they cleared it and made it tillable, they could get that land free. So we had a big influx of people from Europe and people mm-hmm. from within the United States, from the eastern states, moving to get free land. Mm-hmm. And they were clearing land and burning just as the trees were being cut down to make the railroad that was coming through. Because fire was basically used as a tool, right? Yes, I mean, yes. it was clearing it was a, it for, was for farms, for homes, for, to lay the railroad, like you said. Yeah. They, were, they were burning they everything. They cut these huge trees. You know, in Pestuo area primarily, that was all white pine. Right. Now, you get just a little west of here, and that's the hardwoods. And they were being cut for other products. And what was happening, these lumber barons would come in and purchase land, and they would take out the good lumber, right. so to speak, and then move on, and then we'd go back to the government for taxes, back mm-hmm. taxes. So that was why the uh, Homestead Act was enacted, so that people could clear that and make that land tillable. Right. So we had people coming from all over because it was quite an opportunity for them. Right. So you had uh, immigrants arriving from, they were coming from Sweden, England, Germany, Ireland, Norway, countless other countries, Canada, because Peshtigo, not only Peshtigo, but Peshtigo in this area was where the jobs were. It was a haven. You know, so, you know, one of these immigrants was a man named Charles Lemke, who arrived with relatives from Mecklenburg, Germany, in 1856. Now, after arriving initially in Washington County, obviously the lure of jobs in Peshtigo, there wasn't any forestry going on in Washington County at the time. The jobs were up north in Peshtigo, so he left his family that he came over with and went and got a job with the Peshtigo company. Never saw his family again. Oh, really? Never saw his family again. So he goes up to Peshtigo, and while working for the Peshtigo company, he was able to save up enough money to eventually purchase land to build his own farm on 80 acres. You know, that's the American dream, right? You come here. You're not allowed to do that in Germany. You're not allowed to do that in Sweden. Most parts of the world. You come here. And you work to own your own plot of the earth, to own your own land. And he was able to do that. And while working at the Peshtigo Company, another employee of the Peshtigo Company kind of caught his eye. A tall, beautiful, blonde-haired Frederick Tachman. And knew it was going to be a woman. Of course. We've got to have a love story here. Uh And she was also a German immigrant from Mecklenburg, which obviously, you know, created a natural bond between the two. And she was a pyromaniac. Oh, never mind. I'll speculate. You're uh, you're adding in possible scenarios here. <laughs> just another have theory. To, have to go do some more research. Just another theory. Now, at the time, Frederick was was pregnant, uh, so Charles is like, well, I'm not going to go by that quite yet, until he finds out that the father had left her. So, they fell in love and they got married, and uh, Charles and Frederick were married, and he raised that baby, which was a daughter named Louise. Uh, as his own. So now the Peshtigo Company employs half of the city's residents at the time. There's about 1,700 people living full-time in Peshtigo. That's not including all the workers that are there. That's just the people that are living full-time in Peshtigo. A lot of people commuted, as you said. So about 1860s, there's about 1,700 people in Peshtigo. Half of those people work at one business in the town, and it's the lumber company. And just to set up the picture a little more as far as even the bridge, the main bridge coming in was made out of wood. So, I mean, literally, the passages into the city and out are are all wood-based. So, I mean, we're just kind of setting up a scenario here. So another one of the Peshtigo Company employees, Mary McGregor, worked alongside Frederick. She was a cook in the boarding houses. Again, there's a bunch of boarding houses for the employees. And they have dining rooms and obviously servers and cooks. And Mary was a cook, and Frederick was one of the servers. So they were friends. And the McGregors came to Peshtigo after emigrating to Canada from Ireland. So again, they're immigrants coming to Peshtigo because that's where the jobs are. And they also have a dream of owning their own land. And Mary and her husband, John, 
And John, you know, bought tools that he needed to clear land to build a cabin, but he didn't even have that yet. They lived in the boarding house. It was just a dream of his to own land. But they were pushing 60 years old by this time. And Mary was, you know, kind of saying that it was maybe a pipe dream, but it was still John's dream to own land of his own in America. And so there was a tract of land for sale in what was called the Lower Sugar Bush. Now, the sugar bushes were three kind of natural clearings in the woods on the western outskirts of Peshtigo proper. And they were called, hmm. unbelievably, the upper sugar bush. Sure. The middle sugar bush. Well, you just referred to it as Peshtigo proper. And the lower sugar bush. These are not bush. the biggest cities on the planet, and we're using terms like we're referring to New York. Back then, they were more significant than they you know are now as far as size, but... Well, the, the the sugar bushes were the suburbs of Peshtigo at the time. Sure, sure, metropolitan area. So there was a tract for land in these sugar bushes, and John and Mary McGregor, um, after years of toil and hard work, were able to build, uh, were able to buy a plot of land, and build their own farm in uh, the lower sugar bush. And these were farming communities in the sugar bushes. So you got Peshtigo, which is more of the lumber company, railroad town. Right, the sugar bushes were much more family orientated. That's where the kids were. That's where the women were, and they, you know, and they were normal farms. What you would see today: cattle, pork, planting crops. You know, but out there they had blueberries and raspberries and blackberries and cranberry bogs and, and mushrooms and schnozberries and wildfires and anything they could harvest, and they would bring to Peshtigo and sell at market. So these farmers in the sugar bushes were thriving. They were doing very, very well for themselves. These were immigrants that came here with nothing, and they start farming in the sugar bushes, and they're thriving. You Providing know, products to the people that are part of the lumber industry. Quote, unquote, the, the quintessential American dream, right? Sure. Sounds like an interesting life, too, to be honest. Now, as I said, Peshtigo is where you have your lumberjacks, your sawmill workers, your railroad workers. They also had saloons, gambling, brothels. What? Whiskey. In you know, Wisconsin? A town or two had that stuff, yeah. Well, they had to do something when they weren't working. So, but Peshtigo was not, you know, the way we're describing it just sounds like it was kind of run by the Peshtigo company. It was not necessarily just a company town. There were businesses there. There were a lot of businesses there. I mean, it started maybe started out that way, but like any other thriving area, you got to have places to eat and places for entertainment and that kind of stuff, so it starts building up. Right. That's, you had, I mean, there were drug stores and hardware stores, grocery stores, jewelry stores, sellers of fine clothing. Sure. Right? People musical, were making money hand over fist. Mu- so. Musical instruments. People were, they were selling pianos. Sure. Organs. There were hotels and bakeries. So, you know, when you hear that Peshtigo was a booming lumber town at this time it was i mean there were jobs there there was a lot of money there because even though lumber kind of made the city go there was a lot of a lot of lumber to money be sold. floating around though yeah and that that's how a city builds so now to the to the east of Peshtigo, and so you're looking across the bay now kind of in the thumb of wisconsin obviously you have door county a bunch of immigrants coming into the door county area you know these were belgians and bohemians french dutch irish and they came here in the 1850s and by the 1870s again kind of much like the sugar bushes they're thriving so by the summer of 1871 peshtigo and its surrounding areas was doing very very well the peshtigo company was well on its way to cutting six million board feet of lumber. They were rebuilding the nation. New immigrants were arriving weekly to fill jobs. Railroads were being built. Homes were being built. Mills were running at capacity. The town was thriving. But danger, as we stated, danger was looming because the air around Pashtigo was thick. Well, and it makes sense. There's sawdust everywhere. I mean, you're, you're creating a trail that's just, it was an exceptionally dry summer that year. With these slash and burn techniques, cutting down the trees and stuff like that, you're you're opening up the land. So, the, it was almost like the perfect storm was a brewing. All these things coming together, and no one foresaw it because you're just you know it's a booming town at the time. But looking back, it's like wow, I guess all these factors led together. And there was sawdust everywhere, as you said. All their houses, obviously, as we said, were wood. The businesses were wood. Sawmills had piles of sawdust all over the place. Right, right. You have literally literal p- 
piles of sawdust. Like a, like a crumb outside. pile for the fire. Yeah. And they're outside of wooden sheds. Right. Right? It, the sh- sawdust were used inside every home. It filled their mattresses. Sure. Their mattresses were filled with sawdust. Not down feathers or whatever we use today. I don't know what mattresses are made of. <laughs> Pillows maybe are down feathers. You know, foam. Sure. I don't know what we use today. Well, there's a lot more technology. But, but in 1871, they had a ton they used, of sawdust. Yeah. They used it as much as they could. You know, and they also used it to line their streets because th- their streets were mud. Right? If you ever, if you ever saw Deadwood, the HBO sh- miniseries Deadwood, great show, highly recommend it. That's, I love the city in general. That scene of what that town looked like is pretty comparable to what Peshigo looked like. Kind of very dirty, you know, and they had dirt, mud streets. And when the wind would blow, it would blow all that wind, all that mud all over the place. So they lined it with sawdust, which didn't blow nearly as much as, as the dirt from the mud did. So there, there was it down and- sawdust all over the place. So obviously, as Mickey stated too, fire was nothing out of the ordinary no. in Peshigo. Right. You know, and they, the smell of ashes and, like you said, the, the slash and burn and all. I mean, these were normal parts of everyday life. So you don't think, oh, my God, something's burning. You think, well, I live in a lumber town. Forest fires were, were normal, were right, a normal right. part, part of town. Somewhat controlled of, or small They ones, were controlled least. burns, right? Right. You know, so, I mean, farmers used fire to clear land. Yep. Railroad workers used it to lay track. Slash and burn technique. And whatever whatever wasn't burned away was was pretty much just left. It would pretty much burn up on its own, and nobody really cared because the fire would just burn out on its own. The rains would come and take care of it. Well, this is the first time they had done a lot of this stuff, so they didn't know a lot of the things we now look at and think, well, we would have done that differently. This was pioneering, basically. You know? Right. So you know, and another problem is in 1871, when we say the rains take care of the a lot of the the fires burning, the rains never came in it 1871. It was such a dry summer, exceptionally dry. I read over and over. So the previous winter provided much less snow than normal, and since the end of spring, so we're looking at you know October now, since the end of spring, so from May to October, there were. Two rainfalls. As dry as the summer was, as you said, the the water table wasn't full from the previous winter even, so there wasn't even a surplus underground. It was just setting up for the perfect storm. So, you know, as the air in Peshigo was thick, it was common for people to cover their faces when they went out. You know, when you're heading into the end of the summer in 1871, into the fall, it was hazy sunshine. It looked like fog all the time, right? And yeah, there, there, was, there was ash flying around. Um, so danger was looming, and it, this was it was getting a little worse than what people were used to, though, because there were more fires than they were used to, and the other thing it was hotter than it was used sure. to. The days were hot, the air was a lot thicker, and people would make jokes about, "Ooh, the, you know, the big one's coming today," right? Because it was they kind of—I don't want to say they knew it was coming. It's tongue in cheek. But how, it's like, how do you not? How do you not foresee that something could happen with right. all these conditions as they are? But. You know, these conditions are every day. Right. And the big one never comes. So why are you thinking that this fire over here is going to be any different? Well, and they're making money hand over fist in what dominates any society. Oh, we don't care about all that crap. Which doesn't mean they didn't take precautions, as we'll get into. But people were starting to get nervous. And and people, even people like somebody like John Utter, was starting to get nervous. John Utter was somebody who lived in Peshtigo. He's a former Civil War soldier from Michigan, taken prisoner by Confederate soldiers at the Battle of Chickamauga at 19 years old. Now, anybody who knows anything about the Civil War and being taken prisoner by Confederates, you've heard of Andersonville. You've heard of the terrible, torturous conditions that they had to go through. And when he was finally freed, he weighed 92 pounds. This is a grown 21-year-old man, weighs 92 pounds. After the Civil War, he got gangrene in his foot. And he had to cut off his own toe with a dull knife to stop the infection. Otherwise, he would have died. So he saved himself. He saved his life while in the POW camp. And even he's starting to get nervous. You know, this guy has seen the worst the world has to offer. But after the war, he doesn't go back to Michigan. He comes to Peshtigo again because that is where the jobs are, right? He's swayed by the opportunity of of work. So he comes to Peshtigo. He slowly recuperates from from his, uh, you know, adventures in the Civil War, physically and mentally, and he met and married his wife named Ada Phillips. And they began a family together. But, you know, the one thing that John Utter feared, 
that he couldn't save himself from was uncontrolled fire burning in the forest. And by 1871, that spark had long been lit. And a month before, because these conditions are going on throughout the country, the, the dryness, the, the just the lack of moisture, a month before there were significant fires from Canada to Iowa. So, the, I mean, this wasn't just this one day. The, the conditions, the warning signs were there. But as you said, the, the country was just building up and using wood like crazy. So although people were aware of it, and they did take precautions, as we'll get into. It was booming. So it's like, oh, we can take care of that. We've got money everywhere. So so to, to your point, Mick, the Green Bay Advocate, which was the paper at the time, had a, wrote in the paper in September, in September of 1871. It said, quote, The whole air was filled with a dense, suffocating smoke, almost obscuring the vision over a tract of hundreds of square miles. The sun shone down through the smoke with a red, angry glare, the heavens at night would be illuminated on every side with the holocaust of fire. That's pretty poetic, actually. The smoke was bearing down on Peshtigo from countless fires burning, as you said, Mick, from as far away as Iowa and Minnesota. So there were small forest fires throughout the entire state of Wisconsin, all the way west. At least the Midwest, right? Right. You know, this. The, so the, the superintendent of the Woodenware Factory, a guy by the name of Donald Roy McDonald, refused to allow any artificial light in the factory. So no candles, no lamps, right? No lanterns, right. just basically out of, out of caution. Sure. You're not going to light fires in here, which is, we're full of dry wood when we're... You wouldn't even have to spill for a fire to ignite necessarily. So, I mean, you're just being precautious and safe, hopefully. So now on September 22nd, so now we're, what are we, three weeks or so before the fire, Father Peter Pernin, who was a French-Canadian minister... Uh, was building a new Catholic church in Peshtigo. And he was surrounded by a ring of fire while hunting in the woods. And he basically wound up narrowly escaping with his life with the help of others three weeks before October 8th. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. You cannot say in a podcast or anywhere else for that matter those words, Ring of Fire, without playing that song, either with your mouth or hearing it with your ears. (laughs) So there's fires that people are worried about already. And on September 24th, a major fire hit the area and took out sawmills in Peshtigo, in Ocanto, Little Suamico, Fort Howard. And here's the thing that really hurt, but they didn't know it at the time. It took out the telegraph line in Peshtigo to Green Bay, basically leaving them on an island. Right. Which, was, which is a big part, as we've already alluded to, why this fire was not reported, why people didn't know about it to come help rescue or anything. I mean, that was the main source of communication at the time, and the fire took it down. And it left a 20-mile gap. In communication, which communication almost, was slower back then as it was, almost proved fatal to right. to uh, to Peshtigo. But in that fire, you know, mercifully the wind shifted, and it wound up burning itself out, and all the towns were saved. But that was really the fire on September twenty fourth, three weeks or so before the fire, that really put fear into people. When they were really, you know, people were getting nervous about possibly real. something. right Before he just speculated, nothing ever happened, so why worry about it? Well, this was a real situation that makes you think, oh, we need to start taking precautions. So people started to bury their items. They started to bury their items and, and you know, dig holes and bury their belongings. Uh, they began to dig fire breaks around their property and hoping that the forest around them, which had already been burned, couldn't be burned up again. Peshtigo also started stockpiling large amounts of water. I mean, because of this fire, they started realizing we need to have kind of surplus of this stuff, whether it was enough or not. They they did start taking some kind of precaution. Sure. They were getting nervous. They were taking precaution, as you said, but life continued on. You know, that sure. you couldn't just pack up and leave back then. You know, we would get in our car and go away until the, you know, you see this every year out west. With hurricanes. You know, down, when people, are, people leave. Right. They didn't have that then. They had a horse and buggy. Right. You know, if they had that. So they couldn't leave. So life continued on. On Saturday, October 7th, the day before, 50 immigrants from Scandinavia arrived in Peshtigo. They're beginning their new American life, right? 
and they found themselves in an area where they could barely breathe and ash. This is what you alluded to, Mick. They wrote, quote, ash was falling to the ground like snow. Imagine so much ash coming from wildfires in the forest that it looks like a snowfall. Can't even breathe. You can't breathe. The air is black. Right. The next morning, the morning of October 8th, 200 men arrived from Chicago to work on the railroads. The railroads aren't even built yet. Right, again, people can't just skip town. And all that's made of wood, bridges, any entryway, any entryways, railroad or vehicles, it was all wood-based. So once this starts, you're not getting out either. Right. Father Pernine, because he was still building his, his Catholic church, uh, he held mass in his home that morning, the morning of October 8th. And, you know, they prayed for rain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And while they were praying for rain, a very peculiar sound could be heard faintly in the distance, slowly growing louder as the day drew on. So Sunday, October 8th, began with reports of a copper sun, which disappeared entirely by noon behind the smoke. You just, you couldn't even see the sun through the through the smoke and it's it's stated that gases from the marshes uh were mixing with the smoke and it was creating this kind of eerie milky yellow glow <laughs> over Pashtigo. i mean it just sounds scary actually the stone we were talking about i went out at one point on wednesday night and the sky was yellow yes after it was a you're it right. was an eerie the calm before the storm, it was just a weird color in the sky. It was so light at like 8.30 or 9 o'clock, and it sounds similar to this. I mean, it wasn't the same situation, but you just know something's coming. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things where you get on Facebook and you see, you know, 100 people posting pictures of the sky right. on Facebook because it was this, you'll never see it again. Right. You'll never see the sky that color again. It was a yellowy, weird. orange color, you know, and there was no fire anywhere. This no. was a... Sounds similar, but obviously the conditions were but completely different. But it was different. seven hurricanes touched down. No, seven hurricanes. tornadoes. Seven wow. tornadoes. That's a powerful storm to bring hurricanes to Wisconsin. <laughs> it was uh, quite the night on uh, last Wednesday night. Very similar. Con- I mean, like you say, the sky, when you look in the sky and you just feel something's coming, that's when these people started to panic. Yeah. And the, d- the day was unusually warm, and, and they, there were reports of, uh, you know, a brisk wind would blow. And it would actually singe their arm. Oh, you know, it, it's a warm day, but a gust of wind would, would blow, and it would actually burn their arm. That's how hot the air was, you know, and the temperature was rising throughout the day. One person who became concerned about the wind gust was Charles Lemke. You know, he's on his farm in the lower sugar bush, and he wanted to move Frederick, his wife, uh, and their family to Frederick's sister, who lived in Peshigo, thinking it would be it's safer in the city. Right. This was their, uh, this was his thinking at the time. So now Charles and Frederick, if you remember, he married her while she was pregnant and he raised that daughter as his own. They had a rough spell. That daughter um, passed away from a stomach infection at two years old. A year later, they had a year and a half year old son, Carl, who passed away. And then after that, they had a one year old daughter, Hannah who passed away. These are similar scenarios that we covered in the Wisconsin Death Trip Three children, none of them making it to three years old. And this is around that, I mean, this is a little earlier than that time, Wisconsin Death Trip, but this is the things people were dealing with, fire or not. When you had children at this time, it was almost expected that you were going to lose a few. Right. I don't, I mean, think about that today. You can't. It's it's so foreign to us. Right. And this isn't all that long ago. And it still happens, but it's just a big shock when it does. This isn't all that long ago. You know, I mean, there are people alive today who heard this firsthand account from their grandparents who went through this. Right. I mean, this isn't... Right in the middle of our country's history. Yes. So, you know, but happier times were on the way for them, and they did have a family, and they actually had four more girls born after those three infants had passed on. So now they're a family of Charles and Frederick and four daughters, and Frederick is pregnant again. She's not only pregnant, but she's a week overdue. So, you know, the wind is blowing, the wind is it's hot. It's hot when your hair is singeing because of the wind in your 
over nine months pregnant. Oh boy. Charles is getting really nervous. He's thinking I gotta I gotta get my family to my sister in law in Peshtigo. And mom may have been feeling some things too. Sure. So he begins hitching the wagon and he's getting ready for him to take him to town. And uh as soon as the wind gets flared up, they died down again. So then Charles's guard went down and he's like, Okay, maybe tonight's just gonna be a normal night and he didn't. He didn't move him to Pesh, to Pesh to go. They stayed. Now over at John and Mary McGregor's farm in the lower sugar bush, John as well, he sees a sullen red sky over the treetops. It's not all that unusual, right? There's, there's red skies a lot. There's small forest fires happening a lot. He didn't quite get nervous because of that, but what he was nervous about after the winds died down, it was almost a complete abnormal calm hit like no breeze at all the calm before the storm the calm before the storm right so he goes over just in case just in case this is the one and he unhitches all his animals his horses his cattle his sheep just in case right they can run free if they have to well i mean that's a big risk he's taking i mean he relies on those that's basically his right. work crew and just because he's envisioning such a nasty scenario, he's letting them go. To, to, to save them. You know, I think he was probably hoping that they would stay. Sure. But in case, obviously he was hoping they would stay. Right. But, but in, in case in, they, if all hell breaks loose. When extreme situation arises, mm-hmm. hopefully they can save their own lives. So while this... It's a big kind, risk, you know. While this kind of very bizarre, almost ghostly silence falls over Pashtigo and the sugar bushes across the bay in Door County, it was hell on earth. Door and Kiwani counties uh, experienced a sudden wind change, and it blew a bunch of smaller fires in the area into several large ones, destroying farms, whole towns, anything that lie in its way. The town of New Franken was a settlement of Bavarian farmers. It was destroyed in minutes. Everything went up. The fire swept up the peninsula into Door County and was headed right towards a community known as Williamsonville. Now, Williamsonville was founded by brothers Tom, John, James, and Fred Williamson about five years earlier. And they they ran a shingle factory there that pretty much supported the town. You know, everybody in that town pretty much ran that shingle factory. And the town was doing well, right? It's a farming community, a manufacturing town because of the shingle factory. Well, and you're built, I mean, but like you say, nearby towns are going up like crazy. Buildings are being built. Shingles are needed. You need right, roofs on right. every building. So, so on the evening of, of October 8th, Tom had noted that uh, the wind had changed direction, which I mentioned, and then it was now blowing from the southwest. And that after dinner, he went outside and he checked on a fire that he saw was burning earlier in the day that he and his father had put out. But he noticed that it, it was burning again. And it wasn't only burning, it seemed to be growing. So he immediately ordered several other men to hitch mules to bring tanks of water to attempt to put it out. Though within minutes, there was a, a, just this massive gust of wind knocking trees down in all directions. And that's when they saw the red reflection in the sky to the south. And they knew what was coming. Hell. All right, so let's stop it here. We got a lot more to talk about. No question about it. We pretty much only scratched the surface. We've set the scene now. Um, we know that fire is obviously it's brewing and it's coming. So let's leave the story of the fire for the next episode. We don't want to overwhelm you, I think, with uh, the information of leading up to the fire than the fire itself. So I just, like we said earlier... Let's break this down into two episodes. Come back for uh, for episode eight for part two of this and episode nine as well. Like we said, we'll bring in Jim Cooper from the Midwestern Paranormal Investigative Network. And we'll talk with him about the paranormal angle of Peshtigo. Is there a paranormal angle of Peshtigo? So the next two episodes, episode eight, episode nine, will also be about um, this tragic day in American history. A lot in the hopper about Peshtigo. I hope you're enjoying this first Deservedly episode. Deservedly so. Of course. So stay tuned. Hit subscribe if you haven't already so you can catch these updates 
um, when they're posted in real time. Keep the feedback coming and uh, look for episode eight and episode nine coming up.